Don't try and hide anything. Okay. Be Daniel Johnson, not Neil Young. Welcome to the Reinventing Education Podcast. I'm Rob McLeod, joined by Brendan O'Leary, and today we are going to discuss student support, differentiation, teaching models, and homework in the traditional or security-minded school. How are you, Brennan? Hey, I'm not too bad, Rob. You know, getting back into it. By the time the listeners hear this, January is going to be done and dusted, and spring is only a few years away. Hmm. Had a very interesting week. I was lucky enough to speak with Solomon Khan, the main dude behind Khan Academy, like the guy who's on like Forbes list of most influential people and hangs out with Bill Gates, has one of the number one TED Talks. I'm not just um, trying to hype myself up that I get to chat with people like that, but uh, I was just blessed with the opportunity, thanks to Silka Weiss, who has been on our podcast before, Um she has a symposium, an online symposium coming up through her Learn Culture site organization, talking with pioneers of education, people who've done really fascinating things. And she asked if I could join her to help to interview Solomon Khan. It was a fascinating talk. And I'll just leave it at if you don't know about Khan Academy, check out khanacademy.org. It's an incredible online resource that essentially has a worldwide curriculum available at your fingertips with lessons for everything imaginable. So really cool to talk to him just to talk about the future of online education and the role of government, the role of the free market, and the role of nonprofit organizations like Khan Academy in terms of evolving education. It's pretty mind-blowing that you got to speak to him and um, you know I hope we get to hear that interview because some of the things you you mentioned you spoke about are very much in line with what we're saying is kind of the really healthy iteration of the opportunity value but giving students uh, many different ways to learn, learn at their own speed with the support they need. So it's mind-blowing that you got to speak to someone who's at that level of influence in education and uh, yeah i mean khan academy is used pretty much comprehensively across north america international schools and uh yeah i I believe he said they're now at 85 million users worldwide which is incredible mind-blowing um a lot of it's math-based but they've got some really good stuff for programming they got a lot of other areas of uh, of uh, study as well. For me, I had a chance to head off to Tokyo to do some training based on becoming an accreditor for a school. So I went to see the WASC people and they kind of trained me up. So I've spoken about WASC before they're the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. So it's a an American-based accreditation agency. And my school, which is an IB school, International Baccalaureate, we're accredited by both of these agencies. And um, so now if I would like to take my knowledge into another school and help them to get their accreditation, um, I can actually do that. I don't feel like I'm ready for that for a year or two, but I thought it was a really interesting to see things from the other perspective. You know, in our school, we're, we were expecting the people to come in. We've got to build our report. We've got to make sure that we're meeting their standards. You know, and then fingers crossed, we get their, their input back. But to be on the other side of that and say, well, how do you actually take what these kind of self-studies that schools do and then help them to see where they're at and to kind of work out their own next steps? So I mentioned Khan Academy. I guess that's my reverse sponsorship for this week. My shout out, Brennan. I know you've been reading some interesting things. Do you want to mention that? Yeah, I read a book by someone who's alive. 
He's very old. In fact, I, he may not be alive any, anymore. This book was written in the 90s based on stuff that Ernest Boyer, the author of this book, had been researching since the 60s. Uh, this, the book itself is called The Basic School, A Community for Learning. A lot of what is inside it has become the basis of the PYP, the Primary Years Program in the IB, which is the program that my school kind of run. So he talks a lot about transdisciplinary learning. So going above and beyond just subject specific skills, such as multiplication or grammar or spelling in language, keeping that, but also bringing it together into these larger themes, such as symbolic communication or sharing the planet. And how do we bring these together to add more meaning to the learning that our students undertake? Great book, easy read. And uh, I recommend getting on board the Ernest Boyer train. Now, come to you and I's favorite part of this show, in where, a nutshell. Where we tug on our ears like Carol Burnett. Exactly. Would you like to explain for the listeners at home who Carol Burnett is? <laughs> this is actually a strange reference. I know that my aunt listens to all of our episodes, and she had mentioned that Carol Burnett would tug on her ears at some point in every episode as a way to say hello to her mother. So it was my way of just randomly dropping that in for my aunt to discreetly know I was saying hello to her. In a nutshell, Sir Rob McLeod, in one Earth minute or less, tries to project our spiel, our shtick, and other German words that might mean that, into the ears of our listeners. Are you ready for the challenge? I'm ready. Do you need me to throw you some titles and headings, or are you taking you the whole thing? You know that I do. Okie dokie. So, off you go. Everyone in education believes that they are doing what's best for students because everyone is motivated to do what is best for students. However, our narrative here on the show is that there are at least three very different value systems informing what that best for students means. So... There are th three main aims of an education. You can get an education out of school, but it's not an education is not limited to school itself. But the three aims of education are occupational preparation, get you ready for the workforce. Number two, the cultivation of citizenship. So having you adopt the norms of the culture you are from. And the third one, self-development, the developing of your capacities and maturity as an individual. Okay. Now, underlying those three aims, there are four distinct value systems. What would those be? So the four value systems we discuss here on our podcast line up with the work of Frederick Leloux in Reinventing Organizations, Ken Wilber's Integral Stages of Development, and um, Spiral Dynamics as well in their stages. To us, we are saying that there are four values that influence what an education looks like, they kind of act as the software, and we are describing those as security, opportunity, inclusion, and integration. And each of those are sequential. I said those in order, that you move from security into opportunity, into inclusion, and into integration. Now, that is not a theory without controversy. However, there are eight aspects of school that exist in every school no matter where you are what what would those be Rob? yeah so when we want to talk about education where do we look where can you find education 
And we are arguing if you want to reinvent education, you need to look at eight different components in these lineup with integral theories quadrants. And you could say that you could look at the beliefs and the reactions that happen within inside the individuals, any individual involved within a school context, be that students, teachers, parents, etc. You can also look at the communities and the cultures. So you can look at the communities, the actual groups of people, what are the overlapping social circles, and as well their culture, what are the shared beliefs and understandings between them. You can also look at the resources and the practices that are happening. So what is being used and how is it being used? What is being done in the schools? And finally, you can look at the systems and the environments. So the systems are the overarching ways that things are organized and the environments are the actual spaces in space and time where the education or the school is happening. So it's a given that we all want the best for our students, for our children. It's a given that that means the best education possible. What's not given is what that means. And what we're doing here is we're saying that we're moving through those four value systems. And eventually we are kind of saying that that integration of the opportunity, security and inclusion is where we would like to see schools go because that means they are they are meeting all those diverse needs of students within their educational organization. Nailed it there, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, and I might just add a quick addendum to what you said. So those first three values, security, opportunity, and inclusion, each one of those kind of believes it has the correct answers and knows how to do things. And what we're doing on the show now is looking at that each of those three values has babies and bathwaters. Things we want to keep, things that they got right, but things we can also set aside from them. And that fourth value of the integration, it's not so much bringing something new to the table, but it's saying, let's go back and look at those three previous values, balance them out, and keep the babies. Keep what has been right, but be able to balance all three of them, which the three previous values don't seem to do when left to themselves. Yeah, and that brings us to what we've been looking at for the last little while. So the whole of this season shall we say, has been us taking a look at how traditional education, which we are calling the security value, what it looks like, what it may look like in its healthiest iteration, where we may agree with what it does, which we're calling, as you said, the babies, the things we want to keep hold of as we move into other value-based systems of education. And also, what are the bathwaters? What are the things that we probably want to leave behind? Or if we were coming from another mindset an opportunity mindset or an inclusion mindset we may question it may come into conflict with our values so today as you said we're going to be looking at the teaching models i.e the lesson itself what does that look like and then within that how students are supported and this idea of differentiation so giving different students different work or tasks and finally how that ties into homework now we also going back to last episode we had that awesome interview with Tyson, who ran the uh, the wrestling factory, and 
we saw an awesome amount of great practices in that traditional security kind of paradigm that he's using in his particular context. What we would say is that the context of wrestling in 2020 has, there's a bigger place to adhere to those traditional values than there are in kind of mainstream education. Go back, listen to that episode. I think we make a, a strong case for why Tyson is doing an awesome job. Maybe the way to think of it is when you finish at a wrestling school, the world you're entering is more in alignment with that security value. Therefore, a security value informed education is a better match. Whereas in 2020, when you leave a public or private school system, the world you're entering demands some of that security value, but also is demanding some of the opportunity value, arguably more the opportunity value and certainly some of the inclusion value as well. So we are saying that the security value alone in a modern school education context isn't enough in and of itself, but there are parts of it that we do not want to leave behind and we want to bring them forward. So Brandon, should we get into looking into a lesson and what we want to keep from it? Sure, so we would call this the model of instruction, how the teacher acts within the class and how they, uh, how they interact with students in terms of the lesson. So what we would generally see, what we saw in our kind of, in our thought experiment, was you saw the teacher throwing out a whole bunch of questions to the students, but the questions were not challenging per se, that most of the students in the room knew the answers to those questions, and they were there to reinforce. Now, what is it about that we would keep, and what is it about that maybe we would not want to keep, Rob? When we have a shared agreement on what are the key facts that everybody needs to know. There is a place for the reinforcement of those facts to ensure that they are secure in the minds of students. So this idea of like teacher throwing out questions that students should be able to answer, that's helpful for when it's that closed body of knowledge that we want to ensure that everybody does have. How large that closed body of knowledge is, that's a huge debate and that's something for a school to work out but when it comes to that closed body of knowledge, certainly some kind of reinforcement is wise. Now the bathwater though, if you enter into the opportunity value more, this simply doesn't really work because the opportunity value really believes that, school, that students should constantly be on their developmental edge. They should be consistently challenged and when and where possible, the content of a lesson should be differentiated to meet where the student's level of ability is. Whereas in the security value school, things look very different because there is the belief that everybody should be moving along at the same pace together. A little bit more like the kind of traditional industrial revolution model that gets critiqued a lot. So in the security value, we're kind of trying to move everybody along and making sure that no one's left behind Whereas in the Opportunity Value School, we want students to be challenged at their developmental level against our objectives and goals for them. So the next thing we could look at in a lesson is we could look at the, how the students answer some of these questions. So in the most stereotypical old school, traditional security informed school, a student would stand up behind their chair, probably even push in their chair, they would answer the question, and the idea is that you would go through as a teacher 
the entire class, most likely in some kind of an order. Maybe the students know the order. Maybe it's only you that understands how students are getting picked, but everybody is having an equal opportunity, an equal duty to answer these questions. And again, here, you know, that knowledge is there, that core knowledge. It's, it's about um, reinforcing those ideas, reinforcing those answers. And this is quite a safe way. You know, the security value talks about safety a lot. It's a kind of emotionally safe. You know, the question is coming to you and you know that you're going to know the answer. Now, of course, what if you don't know that answer? Then everybody's looking at you. You're stood behind the, tape, the desk and this may not be, if the school is not operating in a kind of healthy, supportive kind of way, that could be the place where you don't answer that question right in the right way. You could be mocked, you could be made fun of, it could be very trying emotionally for you. But in the school we saw, you know, it was a very positive environment in the sense that it was supportive. So I guess in that case, even if you didn't quite know, you may get a hint from your friends, the teacher may support you. But even if this is working, it doesn't take long for, again, that opportunity value to say, there's no challenge here. This is just children going through the motions and it is not challenging anybody. So let's step that up a little bit. And I know that when, I, when I've taught in this more opportunity kind of minded system and you've got the students in front of you, you want to throw out questions that are a higher level, a lower level. You want to match questions to certain children to engage them and to bring them in. If, on the other side of things, if you're in that inclusion value that's very much about the development of the individual, having students simply stand behind tables, stand behind chairs and answer these rote questions, there is no growth. There is no personal development there. There may be some self-discipline, which again is a big thing within the security value, but there's no personal growth in your areas of interest or your areas of expertise. And so this wouldn't fly very much with those other value systems. Yeah, and even for a teacher who is influenced and kind of motivated by the security value, I just remember one of my dad's stories that he very much had one of these classes when he was in high school, and the teacher appeared to be randomly choosing students, but my dad had caught on to the crisscrossing pattern in the class that the teacher was using throughout the year, and my dad relatively ingenuitive guy realized, oh, these are the two people he keeps calling before he calls me. So I'll just start to pay attention when I hear that guy's name. I'll know that before, then when this guy's name is called that I'm coming next. So I can tune out for 90% of this and just tune in for the 10% before I need to go, which is really a student not doing their duty which is really a core component of that security value, that students have the duty to be listening to the teacher who's doing their duty to tell you what you need to know. And I think that's what happens when you have more opportunity-minded students that are looking for those loops and gaps in the system. We've talked briefly about the developing ages, the developing kind of value systems of children and Certainly, once a student starts to hit 12 to 18, generally we see that opportunity value emerge within them. And so, if you are an opportunity, if you're looking for that challenge or if you're looking for those loopholes that we would see inside the opportunity value, and you have a security minded teacher, you are going to give that fella hell because you're, you're going to gamify just, their class. You're going to, you are going to gamify, you're going to look for every loophole. You're going to, and, um, 
have a buddy who tells me about this all the time of just how he found those loopholes in school and how he managed to really minimize the amount of work he had to do while still achieving. So we come to then whole class time. This is the instruction itself. So this would be the beginning 20, 30, even 40 minutes of the lesson where the teacher would essentially give a lecture style set of information. Sometimes this is includes some rote reinforcement. Sometimes it's new information that's just kind of put out there that will then be connected to the task they will do later in the lesson. So this lesson would probably be very knowledge heavy. It would be based heavily on remembering facts. It would essentially be the kind of lecture that we would see in universities to this day. Well, there is always a place for a lecture. I know lectures come under a lot of fire, but the fact that TED Talks get millions of views shows that there is a time and a place where we just want input from an expert. And if our teacher is an expert, we want to hear from them. And if you go back again to the Tyson Dukes episode, we talked about how one of the gifts of the security value is the master and apprentice model. And if you have a genuine master at your craft or in your subject, that's someone you want to listen to and you want to spend time being able to engage with them. Um, this is also positive for the reinforcing again of what should be known, those basics ensuring that everybody has had a fair shot, that everybody has heard the information that everybody should know. It has been promulgated. It has been made public. However, obviously, there are drawbacks here. And, you know, I think this kind of approach in social media, in even just in the mass media now, I think comes under so much critique. As you addressed the level of challenge, you know, um, Solomon Khan talking with him this week, he said there was actual research done. Now, he didn't say this, but I, I would infer that he's talking about research was done in classrooms that operate with this model of whole class instruction. And I think they found that teachers geared their level of difficulty to the bottom 23rd percentile. So basically, you're looking at the bottom four fifths of ability in the class because you don't want to lose that lowest level of achievers, but you don't mind slowing down everybody else to make sure that they are, they're not left behind. And that's just from my, from a, op, the opportunity part of me just feels that so incredibly inefficient and ineffective. Um, yeah, there's also no personalization. And from the inclusion level, there's no personalization for the student here all 20, 25, 30 students in the room, they are receiving the same input whether or not a lecture is the best way for them to engage with information. And the lecture certainly has its limits. You know, there, there's even just like a power dynamic, like I'm the expert, you're the audience, you listen to me. And often there's no real inquiry. There's no true personal development. Again, we've addressed this idea that the level of challenge is kind of the same. And in all honesty, you can also just let, be left behind. If you're not following it, you're not following it. And the lecture has come and gone. Um, and there's no differentiation to be able to, to face that. So if we look at the resources that teachers are using in their lessons, most likely we're going to see some kind of workbook, textbook, 
or emphasis on worksheets. And by and large, you're not going to see differentiation between those. Everybody is working on the same task at the same time during the lesson. Now, there will usually be some kind of expectation for early finishers, but usually the level of challenge isn't necessarily upped for them. It's often that there's just a larger quantity of work for them to do. So if student A can only finish one worksheet in 45 minutes, and student B has done the worksheet in 20 minutes, they're like student B is likely given an additional worksheet to work on. Bell rings, you hand in your books so that the teacher can check through that you've done your duty and completed the tasks. And basically the lesson goes right to the end of the class. Um, as far as feedback or anything like that at the end of the class, there might be some kind of a wrap up of reinforcing what was the main idea or main content for this. But typically you're not gonna see any kind of peer feedback or class feedback between each other. And so the kids go off and they're doing their work and it's essentially drill based. Um, it's based on remembering, it's based on some basic core skills. Now if we go back to what Tyson spoke about. This is the point where he's doing thousands and thousands of repetitions. He's doing those drills. Now, if a teacher, a class teacher at the same level of expectation from their kids, and they were really, really pushing those basic core skills, that, as we said in the last episode, that's key. That is something you can build on. So that if used in the right place at the right time, can be a place where you can really build those skills. And one of the ways we do it in our school, which is not a security minded, it's much more in the inclusion, moving towards that integration value, is we realize the importance of those drills and those core skills. And we do use programs such as Khan Academy where students can do as much of it as they like. We use it a little bit inside class, we use it at home. But going back to this lesson, we would expect the students to be working on the same work and it would be very drill based. Now, this education is, is, is kind of done to the student and, and the feeling within the inclusion and opportunity value is that it's not really done with them, maybe not done for them. And this would come into conflict with how the opportunity value wants students to be able to build skills that they can use in their own kind of career development or their own path. And the inclusion value wants to be given opportunities to actually develop themselves and their own uh, individual strengths. None of this is on offer here. You are doing the task that you've been assigned. It may not be challenging, as you said, the bottom 23rd percentile. So the you know 75% of the class is not particularly being challenged by this at all. So that would go, that would fly completely in the face of the opportunity value. Now, one question that popped up to me is when we're interviewing Tyson, it's clear that the drills are for the game, quote unquote, the wrestling match. What's the game here? What is the game that we are doing these drills for? Now, if you take and apply these drills into something like an inquiry or a project, that's something you would see much more in the inclusion value, a little bit in the opportunity value. You're probably not going to see it in the security value. So again, what is the game? If these are the drills, if we are prepping you, when will you use them? And so that's a really big kind of bathwater that you would have to answer if you were going to have these drills in a modern school in the year 2020. Yeah, and I think the ultimate bathwater here is when the drills themselves are the game. So for example, you've got an English lesson, 
you're simply doing grammar drills as the instruction, and then your test itself is just, again, grammar drills, but you're never actually asked to apply that grammar into an actual piece of writing, and maybe you're incapable of doing that. It's like if you only ever spent your time doing soccer drills and you get thrown into a game, without that experience of the game, those drills may or may not serve you in any way. So I think that is a bathwater. When the drills themselves replace the actual game, the drills should be preparing you for. And I guess then we can talk about the idea of differentiation and support inside the classroom. And generally what we would see is, as we said, everything's pitched towards that bottom percentile, but that bottom kind of quarter of the class. And you are pretty much on your own as a student, both inside that classroom and at home unless you get your parents on board to help you with this. And this idea then of the teacher standing up and walking over to the student, you know, I've experienced it as a parent with, I had a child in a security-minded school. The the student is finding this difficult from time to time. Could you stand up, walk over there and check in? And there was real resistance at times. Like, well, I shouldn't need to. Or like, what if I have to do this for everybody? And uh, there was some real resistance from teachers there. I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit. But what are the babies in bathwater of this kind of like lack of differentiation? If you, if you, yeah. And I think for a moment here, though, we need to get inside the mindset or the perspective of someone coming from this security value. And I think the underlying belief here is the teacher has a lesson where it is their duty to share the information that needs to be known. The student's duty in that lesson is to take in, understand, and retain that information. So if at the end of a lesson, a student has not retained that information, that is a shortcoming of the student not upholding their duty. It's not the shortcoming of the teacher because the teacher's duty was to make known what you need to know. And if you didn't, that then falls on the student. And in this security-minded sort of traditional approach, if the student didn't get it. It's not necessarily the teacher's job to help. The duty then kicks in, the security kicks in, that the parents are supposed to be the ones who step in to provide support. Now, there are benefits to this and there are certainly drawbacks. One of the positives is that, you know, parents do care. They wish to help provide support and, you know, they can't do that in a typical day-to-day school lesson, but they can do that through homework or reinforcement at home. And if it goes well, you know, this can help to build a relationship between the parent and the child. There'll be a lot of learning moments that can happen. And I don't just mean learning moments in terms of the content from school, but discussions between parent and child that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And this can also help to keep parents in the loop about what's actually happening in the classroom and parents can feel informed. Now, obvious bathwater is that parents' efforts are then required to make up for what could be substandard teaching. A teacher is not actually upholding their duty of making that information clear and available. And it's also up to parents to kind of fill in the gaps if students are being over-challenged or under-challenged. An obvious thing here is if a parent doesn't provide that help, if there's no support given, then this student's floundering because they don't really have anywhere that they can go for help. They can't get it from the teacher. They can't get it from home. And essentially, time spent in class, time spent doing homework is just wasted time. They can become demoralized. And, you know, this might require expensive tutors outside of school. And, you know, this just feels kind of like an injustice or like a student has been left behind within the system. And of all the things we see, it's hardest in this sense to pull out some kind of baby in this kind of idea of not offering support when some students will need it. Even if you pitched the 23rd percentile, as we say, there are still several students in your class who will require this by your very the, the design of your very own system of pitching the 
the the difficulty of your class. Now, as you get into older schools, as you get as the kids get older, they will put them into streams and in sets and groups. And so, a child at 15 years old may be in a school with 1,500 students or you know 200 students in their year group. There may be six or seven groupings of math students, and they will be differentiated. They're taught by different teachers, aiming at slightly different levels. And so, similar, I guess, to how Tyson would split his beginners and his advanced students, and he would have them training each other. Training the advanced students would train the newer students, which we talked about last week, as we both felt that was a an awesome thing to be doing. You wouldn't probably see that in a mainstream security-minded school. However, that idea of some level of differentiation does come in as students get older. We're primarily um, elementary school teachers, and you would just not see it in the security-minded school. And we both run into it in our professional lives and have been frustrated by that because it doesn't feel in 2020 that it has really a place. Something we'll come back to a lot. Um, and one last comment I, on that. There's yeah. an interesting sort of paradox here too, which I have seen in security-minded schools, which is teachers who expect parents to help catch students up or fill in gaps, then that same student, sorry, that same teacher then complaining that the parent is taking over the student's duty. And that this is no longer the student's work. This is a parent's work. So we did want, we intended to get into talking about homework in this episode. I think it's worth saving that for next time because I think there's a few rabbit holes we can go down on there. Down on in there? That's dirty. There are a few rabbit holes that we could easily go down there. Um, Brennan, I'm enjoying this walk through a thought experiment security school. And I think I've said this at the end of all of our episodes, although this is a thought experiment and sort of a security school in isolation. The reason Bren and I know to mention these things are simply because we have seen these still in schools in the last 10 years. So although this security-informed school kind of exists in our minds as sort of like something from maybe the 1950s or 100 years ago, all of the things we're discussing are still happening in schools today. Absolutely. For better or worse, and we're going to keep keep prizing the babies and bathwater apart, and we'll move on over the next many, many episodes into the opportunity, inclusion, and eventually integration values. Let's wrap it up there then, Rob. Thank you very much for the chat. Appreciate it as always. Two weeks, same re-ed time, same re-ed place. Uh, hoopla. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with someone you know or even just talk about it. And online, basically nowadays, Twitter is about the best place to follow us. We post some content there and share news stories from the world of education that we think are relevant to what we are talking about. From Brendan and myself, thank you very much for listening. Attention is a, is a very valuable resource these days, and we appreciate having some of your attention on what we are speaking about. Bye! Bye!